Rockers. Welcome to Hoosier Illusion, hosted by me, Neil Tafflinger, and Ryan J. Downey, two grown-up hardcore punks, longtime journalists, and longtime friends born and bred in Indianapolis, Indiana. After growing apart, we're reuniting to talk about who we were, who we are, and where we're going. Follow along as we navigate the rugged terrain of our mental landscapes, littered with pop culture, subculture, and the odd reference to Johnny Ringo, James Dean, Axl Rose, and other notable Hoosiers. Welcome back to Hoosier Illusion. I'm Neil. I'm Ryan. We are your hosts. And uh, interestingly enough, I had uh, an old friend of mine who you know, Sherry Collison, mm-hmm. say that uh, she'd, she'd apologize for not listening to my podcast, but then gave herself an out because we were just talking about music or something. And I said, actually, uh, <laughs> we don't talk about music really at all. So yeah, so today we're going to be talking about therapy, but of course there will be ample references to uh, what, pop culture, underground culture, uh, heavy metal, comic books, all the usual stuff, I'm sure. Yeah, in fact, the title of this episode is self-referential, which um, I should point out that you came up with it, so I'm not, you know. Yeah, the, it's, the narcissism it's not isn't even, that out of control. <laughs> it's not even fan service; it's host service. Uh, Make them talk was the name of a split EP from my old band, Burn It Down, and the band Race Trader, which was released on Truskill Records in America and Good Life Records in Europe. I totally forgot that we both had bands that put out records on good life in europe <laughs> yes has since been split back in half um race trader did kind of their own version of it with a new cover and then i've got the burn it down half of it up on streaming sites through my little tiny label ain't no grave recordings not that i necessarily recommend listening to it because it's not that great but it is called make them talk uh which was based on the idea uh which i believe is an islamic theological concept somewhere but the idea that on a day of judgment, you'll be asked to make them talk, meaning the idols that you've erected. Now, of course, there's the literal fundamentalist term that, you know, of God coming down and demanding that you try to make this statue you've been praying to open its mouth and speak. Um, and I think like most spiritual concepts, the more sort of liberal, broad interpretation as allegory is much more meaningful. And certainly even back in 1998, 1999, when I was writing those songs and named that record, that was the way I was looking at it in the terms of, in terms of, you know, the idols of, of self and vanity and, uh, you know, from a sort of monastic type perspective, as well as the larger idols in culture of white supremacy and, gender inequality and on down the list. So that is the title. Yeah. Of this episode. It's, it's a lyric. I mean, my head is full of song lyrics, but there's a certain amount of space devoted to different bands and lines from that song regularly wind their way back through my brain. 
they're non sequitur, but they're like references to things that I'm feeling or thinking at different times. And, you know, every idol in which you believe kind of pops into my head more regularly than others from that song and, and other burn it down songs. And it's, I guess I spend a lot of time thinking consciously or not about the things that we worship and the things that we, that we supplicate to mm. and how they're dead and yes, how they, they, they don't reflect anything of real value and, and it can, it can lead to, or it can either lead to a sort of spiritual death or is simply the byproduct of being spiritually dead that you're looking for these things for meaning because you, you haven't found it already. So anyway, that's the reference, but like a lot of cute references, I drop into conversation and my writing, I wanted to use it as a jumping off point to talk about the thing that sort of brought this podcast into being and brought us closer together after a long time of, of not being close, I guess, which is talk therapy and the concept of opening up and discussing things explicitly that we have carried with us for a long time and either been aware of or in a lot of cases not even aware of. So the gag of, of my life is that I've been talking from the jump probably more than most people I know are comfortable with or interested in hearing. I've, you know, I've always been the guy who was popping off about whatever, offering his opinions unsolicited, you know, even in bands. I was not until the very end of my musical career, uh, or I guess the, the, where I left it last was I, you know, the front man or the singer or the vocalist, but I was always a guy talking from the stage. Um, there's even a, there was even a track on that good life CD, I believe called bassist talks about the scene. <laughs> <laughs> which, that's your, which that, that, that's your autobiography. Yeah, no, it's yeah, that, that, uh, that joke that joke had a, a long lifespan so talking is something that i've always been super comfortable with i've always been a, a i guess a good extemporaneous speaker like something i know about i'll go and i will wear you out talking about it and i love arguing it's just part of my personality i guess so what i couldn't do is articulate how i felt about things it was all intellect. And even a couple times that I'd started doing talk therapy, counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists would even tell me like, okay, you're intellectualizing this. You're not actually in touch with how you feel. This mm. is just all like conceptual to you. And that was a way of, of protecting myself. And, and as, as I, as I got more deeply into it, I realized that a lot of the talking I'd done in my life was about creating this, this edifice, this barrier between myself who was vulnerable and anxious and scared of a lot of things and the rest of the world, which I had a hard time dealing with. I'd had a couple different encounters with talk therapy. My dad had asked me to go as a favor after he and my mom split up and I wasn't ready for it. Uh, I did it, but it wasn't like I wasn't actually there. And then in college, I, I distinctly remember being with you and Bunting at Castleton Square Mall. Mm -hmm. And I just, like, I had, I was, like, sweaty, and I had rashes. Like, I was breaking out in rashes. And I was 
like hanging out with you guys, but I also had this like intense physical discomfort because I was breaking out underneath my, you know, t-shirt and my jacket and I couldn't figure out why. And that was the beginning of what I think psychologists or counselors refer to as a breakdown in place. Like I was going about my daily life, but I was also having a nervous breakdown at the same time. Mm. Um, and I spent like three months in counseling at the IU health center, got on antidepressants for a while, started eating meat, started drinking alcohol, like totally blew up the lifestyle that I'd been living for almost a decade. Would you say that your lifestyle determined your death style? (laughs) Yes, it did. (laughs) Uh, so that was my first run of antidepressants. And because I was young and dumb after I felt good, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm done now. Like I'm, I'm all right. And, and by breakdown in place, I mean like sitting in class and just crying and not knowing why and not even being emotional, but just like having tears running down my face or breaking out in rashes because there was such, there was such a, a volcanic, thing happening inside me that it was like coming out through my body because I couldn't talk about it. So then fast forward, you know, several years and I'm with my wife and, you know, I kind of have a similar experience. Like everything at that point, you know, I'm talking about my early, my late twenties, early thirties. I have this, it's almost like a reservoir of really volatile emotions always at the surface. So any, any little thing that is like one of my issues, like father issues or family or death or all these things that I used to be really wound up about anything like that would happen. It was like just opening a little crack in the surface and stuff would just come pouring out. Like Mm. I just start crying uncontrollably about stuff you know, and it'd be like a dog, the bounty hunter episode. And it kind of became like this joke with my wife and I where like, it was just something that happened. Um, and I couldn't really, didn't really, couldn't explain it and didn't really f- know how to deal with it. It was just a thing. As our lives became more complicated and there were kids and there was a business and jobs and, um, you know, financial pressures, it got to the point where I knew that if I didn't, start working on me in a different way than I had before. I was not going to be involved in my family business. I was not going to be married and there was going to be a great deal of damage done to myself and people I cared about, which included children at that point. Amanda and I started seeing a family counselor and then I just started going on my own and It's probably been the last three or four years that I've been seeing the same counselor off and on. And I recently took a break partly because, you know, my employment status changed and my income dropped significantly. So I didn't feel as comfortable dropping a hundred bucks on a session as frequently as I had before. It's been a a pretty crazy ride because, you know, for a long time, it, it kind of felt like I wasn't getting anywhere. And then... We talked about last season um, when I took my dad, it it felt like this sort of this massive leap uh, through a ton of stuff that I had still not processed. And I'm, I'm still not I'm better, but I'm not well, I don't think. 
maybe I'm okay. Um, I don't give myself very much credit for anything. So I'm much better adjusted than I used to be, and I'm much better able to to experience things in real time. Uh, one of the things that I learned in talk therapy was that I was codependent and that my my tendency was to repress everything. So I'd gotten so good at, at pushing my feelings to the side and just intellectualizing things and working that I didn't even know that I was experiencing things sometimes until months afterward because it was just like, put my head down and go, everything's okay, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And then one day I you know, fly into a rage because all the stuff that I had said was fine was not actually. You know, much like the term narcissism that we hear all the time or OCD, I think codependency is a phrase that we hear a lot and we kind of think we know what it means. And some people are probably misusing it a lot. Uh, could you walk us through a little bit what that actually means and how it applies to you. It's interesting because it came as a shock to me. <laughs> like I'd accused other people of being codependent, but I thought that I was, I thought that I was an Island, you know, like yeah. nothing affected me. You know, I think I even said to my, I think I said to my counselor more than once, like everyone dies alone, you know, like at the end of the day, I'm going to die alone. And that's just the shit that I've got to deal with. And we were going through something, some sort of worksheet, and it became clear that, you know, going down this checklist of behaviors and attitudes that I was actually codependent. Here's here's like a, a checklist of common signs of codependent relationships. So it includes tendency to be in relationships with people who are needy or emotionally unavailable which I always thought I was the emotionally unavailable person, mm -hmm. but I also pursued people who were needy. So like I was the emotionally unavailable person in codependent relationships. Is it possible to be, although it sounds contradictory, like some sort of paradox, is it possible to be both emotionally unavailable and needy? Yes. Cause I think they're two sides. They're, they're two aspects of the same thing, you know, mm. like yeah. uh, I'm, I'm needy, but I'm, fearful of it. So I withdraw mm. needing to always be in a relationship. I wasn't always needing to be in a relationship, but I was always needing to be entangled with someone or, or people having difficulty making decisions in a relationship. That was never really me, but you know, no one has to be textbook. Your feelings are tangled with the other person's feelings. This one I never quite understood until I realized that all of my relationships were this, cycle of me doing something as a in a an effort to predict or manipulate somebody's response so that they wouldn't do something that would then upset me mm. it was never having a fixed position it was always like okay how is this person going to respond when i do x y or z which is like a level of relationship strategy that's exhausting communicating in the relationship is overly difficult yeah, I would say if it wasn't like an intellectual thing, then it wasn't possible. <laughs> it wasn't possible to have very, very productive conversations about emotional stuff. Basing your feelings of self-worth on the other person's approval. That's an enormous one for me. I've always associated my sense of self-worth with my work product or my output creatively. And that's all about approval. It's, it's someone else saying that I'm good enough to have whatever it is that I want or need. And working through that has been hugely beneficial for me. Codependency is about enabling. 
sacrificing your own wellness for the other person because you think that that'll make you happier giving more than you're getting or that one's like having a distorted sense of what I'm getting because I'm not able to talk about what it is that I actually want. Mm. Uh, Feeling like you cannot live without this other person. I've never had that, but again, no one has to be textbook. Um, That's like when you're obsessive, clingy, et cetera. And I think that's what most people think of when they think of codependency is that is clinginess, but that's just like I said, one aspect of it. And feeling unable to leave. That's like a short tour of what codependency uh, is. I had the moment where I I looked at the sheet and thought about the way I behaved and the things that I did. And I was like, oh, it me. And that was, I mean, that was progress in and of itself because, you know, in a lot of ways, talk therapy is diagnostic medicine. You know, you show up and you're sick, but you can't even explain your symptoms always. And then you're trying to figure out what it is exactly that's wrong so that you can then start treating it. And sometimes it takes years to figure out what the hell is wrong. And then when you start treating it, that creates new problems. Like I think I said before we started recording, you know, my wife and I this morning had, I guess I could call it an argument for 40 year old me. There was no, there's no yelling or silent treatment or recriminations like there would have been, 10 or 15 years ago, but it was a tense conversation about the fact that I was grumpy and aggressive this morning uh, about some different things. And she told me that I had, I'd been acting more like a martyr than I had in the past. Like I was saying things like, you know, I'm doing everything, which then implies that she's not doing anything, et cetera, et cetera. And what I told her was, well, actually, I always felt that way. Now I feel that way less. But when I feel that way, I'm saying something about it instead of <laughs> stewing for three months or six months or nine months about it and then flipping out about it. So it's like this two steps forward, one step back thing where the progress is that I can recognize how I feel. Like it's like it's like talking to my six year old. I feel this way. Like I feel mad. I feel sad. And being able to do that in real time is actually progress for me because sometimes I would go weeks without realizing that I was pissed off about something. It was just like an itch inside me. Now I can articulate it. The drawback is though that I'm still not mature enough or skilled enough to do it in a way that then isn't harmful or frustrating for the people who who are around me so i've often said to my jesus nine-year-old son now i'm growing up with him like i'm trying to grow up emotionally while also parenting him and so that he can hopefully be better off when he's 40 than i am now when a lot of people like a lot of people will go to therapy and they will present what's wrong. Here's what's wrong. Like you were talking about, like you have this diagnosis, here's what's wrong that I want to have fixed. And that sets you up in the wrong place to start. And even sometimes you don't even know what's wrong. Like I just, I I don't know something. It just, nothing's right. Try starting with 
how you feel. Instead of rattling off a list of things that I'm annoyed by, I often start with like, I'm annoyed. Okay. And why Mm. is that? Because it's usually not the thing. It's me. You know, other people have serious trauma that they're unpacking and that not everything is you, but in, in, to a large extent, like my problems are just me. So starting with like how I'm responding to something consciously is, is an easier way to get into figuring out what's really wrong than coming and being like, I'm pissed off about this or that. Like just stop with, I'm pissed off and talk about that. Like, okay, how do you feel when you're pissed off? When do you get pissed off? Why do you think you get pissed off? Does that make sense? Is this productive? Is this, is this what you're really, are you really angry about the traffic jam or are you angry about something else? You know, am I really frustrated with my wife and kids or am I, you know, uneasy about our financial situation? You know, those are the things that are, and that's what makes talk therapy so freaking hard. I definitely identify with a lot of things that you just said. Uh, One of them, that idea of going into talk therapy for the first time and realizing that you're, you know, I I call it goodwill hunting, you know, where goodwill hunting uh, goes to therapist after therapist and he's just, you know, comically outsmarting the therapist in order to avoid talking about the things he actually needs to talk about. And while it wasn't as, you know, mean spirited or, or comedic, I definitely had to get past some of that idea of going in thinking I knew all the problems and all the solutions and feeling like I'm just explaining it to them and then realizing like how ineffective that was and what a disservice to yourself you're ultimately doing. What advice would you give to people who, you know, maybe know one or both of us or have been listening to the podcast or just hearing this episode and identifying with various points in your trajectory? What would you say about getting in there and, and breaking the ice and, uh, you know, how, how, how would you suggest somebody get themselves from point A to point B of never having talked to someone professionally and getting through the door? We're in a cultural moment where people glorify the grind and doing the hard work and, you know, eating clean and rise and grind and, uh, you know, regimented living and controlling how much time they spend on this or that, the four hour work week, hacking everything. I would say if you put as much effort into your emotional health as you do into your meal planning or, your email inbox strategy or your whatever the fuck you would find that you could do some pretty transformative things pretty quickly. And you might find that you want to stop grinding altogether, which is where I am now. We, we glorify all sorts of hard work and we praise all sorts of hard work in this culture, but we also, pretty consistently avoid the truly hard work of this emotional repair recovery. You know, if, if you're committed to being fit, if you're committed to being productive, if you're committed to being, you know, your best self and you're not doing 
talk therapy or you're not doing something that helps you have an ongoing internal dialogue about your mental health, about the way you interact with the world, you might be fucking up. I don't know. You mean rise and grind beast mode? Isn't, isn't all there yeah, is to I it? Yeah, I mean, go, go beast mode on your brain. Go beast <laughs> mode on, on the way you interact with the world. It's brutal. You know, it's, it's way, it's way more exhausting than anything else I've done. Like to, to really do work on yourself, it's, it's emotionally draining. And there are, there are times where I've left sessions and just been completely wiped out for the day and I had to go home or just like sat somewhere and stared at a wall. And it's tough and it gets worse before it gets better. Like I was saying with diagnostics, like, okay, so you, you find out that you have cancer. Well, now the fun part starts, you know? Now the part comes where you take the medicine and you throw up and you can't eat. And that's that's the physical equivalent of of what talk therapy can do to you, you know, like you're literally sort of turning your, your, yourself inside out and having to deal with all the stuff that you've avoided, you know, like you're there because you were trying to avoid all this shit that you're now facing. So it, you just got to like, you got to move into the, the haunted house and just be there and be okay with everything that hops out from, from behind a door, everything that, that sneaks up behind you, you know, the lights flickering, it sucks. It, it truly sucks. But when you do that, all the scary stuff and all the stuff you've been trying to avoid or all the stuff that you felt overwhelmed by, it shrinks. You know, it's it's what you're looking for when you drink. It's what you're looking for when you fight. It's what you're looking for when you fuck. It's it's the quiet of everything that's been screaming at you in your head. And if you don't live a life where there are things screaming at you in your head, bless you. <laughs> Be empathetic to the rest of us because it fucking sucks. Man, if, if you're not, if you're not happy with, with where you're at with things and you're not doing talk therapy and let go of other stuff and, and go there because there's, uh, everything's inside. And that's what we, that's what we avoid. Like your, your whole situation with it is almost identical to mine. I mean, my first experience with any kind of therapy is my dad took my brother and I shortly after our mom died. And much as you described with uh, going with your father after a divorce as a, as a young kid, I was there, but I wasn't present. You know, I didn't really feel like I needed to be there. I didn't really understand why we were there. I felt that. Although it was long before people used the word performative, I felt that it was performative of my dad to, to bring us there. I mean, in, in his, his defense, he didn't know what to do. You know, so we went once and that was kind of that. And then the next time I went, I went with my ex who I was with for about 10 and a half years and uh, have two children with. And we get along now and we co-parent well, but we've been split for about five years. We actually went to couples counseling once, which would have been my you know, second journey into any kind of talk therapy. And that was a situation like I described the goodwill hunting thing where I went in there going like, here's what's wrong. And, uh, here's everything that's, that's right and working. And here's what we need help with. So you should fix this. And, um, 
that poor woman was definitely overwhelmed by my, you know, type A bullshit. Especially because your diagnosis might not have been uh, accurate. It was not, as it turns <laughs> <Even> out. <laughs> as it turns out, it was completely wrong. You know, my, my ex and I left and both of us kind of felt, you know, repress, repress, neglect, neglect the underlying issues and go back to business as usual. It wasn't until, and I think we've talked about this on this podcast before, but it wasn't until I had panic attacks for the first time in my life, Tony Soprano style, that I went into talk therapy. I, uh, you know, had a couple of panic attacks in situations, as anyone who's who's dealt with panic attacks before will understand, you know, like you described you and I and Bunting just, you know, roaming a mall together and your body's having this like physical thing, you know, and you, you, you weren't like stressed out by Bunting and I or the mall, you know, it's all this other stuff that's buried in there. That's now because you're not dealing with it, it's forcing itself to the surface in some physical way. And that's what I think people, you know, people who don't understand panic attacks necessarily will assume, you know, Oh, you must be in this really stressful, tense situation. What are you know? What are you? What are you anxious about? Or are you you know, work's driving you crazy, or you're in a turbulent flight, or and certainly those are situations where you can be sort of panicky and fearful. But a panic attack, uh, in my experience, uh, was unrelated to anything obvious. You know, they happened to me. One of them happened when I was in the barber chair, and I was suddenly overcome by this feeling to jump out of the chair and run as fast and as far as I could in any given direction or yeah. get up and beat the shit out of my barber. And none of those feelings made any sense. I like going to the barber shop. I like my <laughs> barber. Um, you know, it was just, you know, it was just a Thursday afternoon or whatever. You know, I, I first I went to a general practitioner and was just like, what's happening? And when I described that same scenario I described to you, he very simply said, that's fight or flight. And I was like, oh, he's like, yeah, you literally just described fight or flight. I'm like, hmm. oh, you know, always knew that phrase. Never, <laughs> never. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, if I were being robbed at gunpoint or something, sure, fight or flight. But, you know, just sitting there getting a haircut. I don't know why that would kick in. But once he said that, it was like, fuck, that was exactly how I felt. Yeah, that's a bunch of shit you're not dealing with, uh, forcing itself to the surface, and my my brain and my body going like, "Hey, we're gonna fight or or fly if you don't handle shit." I was prescribed uh, antidepressants, and then it took a little, few minutes to get that going. But what was nice was that um, a, a real the first real breakthrough for me was sitting down with someone and saying, here's what's going on and here's what's kind of always gone on. And I had kind of self-diagnosed OCD uh, years and years before, uh, just randomly reading someone's account of it. And as I'm reading it going, uh, as you said, you know, it me. And so I was aware that I suffered from that, but just felt that I was managing it and outsmarting it and beast moding and rising and grinding and mind over matter and this and that. And, and none of that was actually true. And while I had those couple of panic attacks, it, it primarily 
the what necessitates talk therapy and medication for me is OCD. You know, when, when I when I get when I have these conversations and I tell people that I'm on antidepressants, I say it's like 95 percent OCD, 5 percent anxiety. Um, yeah. You know, I know people that suffer with anxiety. I, I can only imagine how terrible it has to be given what it felt like having those couple of panic attacks. But my, my issue is OCD and that's the, uh, the one that sort of everything else that's wrong tends to sort of spring from that. And that, you know, manifests itself in a variety of ways, whether it's that, it, you know, it manifests itself in that compulsion with work, which is now not only celebrated as you point out in our culture, but expected. If you're not rising and grinding and beast moding 24 seven, you're not even pulling your weight or treading water these days, you know, is the, the popular perception. And I think like you, I also had that need without recognizing it. And certainly without thinking that I was someone who needed it. Uh, it, it rings true for me as well, that I've had that need to be approved of either by another partner or in my case, in the management business by clients, uh, by other, by peers and contemporaries within my industry, uh, certainly assigning a lot of self-worth and value to the way that I perceived others to be perceiving me. I got to say that the, the greatest breakthrough was sitting down, describing all these OCD symptoms and you know, and having someone, a trained professional in the room go, yeah, you have obsessive compulsive disorder, which I, he said it first. And I was like, wow, okay, so what do we do about it? And he goes, we manage it, we fix it. And, <laughs> and, it, and it was just, it, I instantly felt better just knowing, you know, I liken it to you're taking your car to the mechanic and you're like, Hey, my car's making this crazy noise and doing this and doing that. I don't know what's wrong. And the mechanic's like, Oh, your transmission is slipping. And then you're immediately kind of like, Oh, cool. Okay. So you know what's happening. Uh, and then you're like, what do we do about it? And he's like, well, we're going to go in and you know, probably have to take it apart and see if it needs a rebuild or if it needs replace. But it's like, there's a plan now, you know? And yeah. it's, um, and I was relieved to hear that I have something readily identifiable and, relatively commonplace versus like, I'm just, you know, that that's a situation where I don't want to be a unique snowflake. Yeah. I was just going to say, we are not special snowflakes. There's, and and I, and I love that, you know, for someone who thinks is very individualistic and thought of myself as an Island and all those things in that scenario, the idea of being a special snowflake is overwhelming. uh, Cause then it's like, well, I'm just fucking nuts. You know, you want to be nuts. Let's get nuts. (laughs) <laughs> but, uh, I, yeah, so I, so that was great. And then what I realized once I got on medication, I would go back every few weeks or every few months or whatever. And the guy would say to me, so how are you doing? And I go, oh, you know, good. It's working. Thanks. Everything's great. You know, this and that. And he's like, all right, here's your refill. See you in a few weeks or a month or two or whatever. And then at a certain point after doing that for maybe close to a year, I thought, you know, I should, I should probably be talking to this guy. Like, I think that's part of it. Like, you know, I had that big conversation with him the first time when he prescribed stuff to me the first time. But since then, he just kind of asked me how I'm doing it. And I say, I'm good. You know, I, I should give him like a more robust answer next time. So I go in and he asks me how I'm doing. And so I start talking about different things that are going on in my life. 
And uh, I get about five minutes in and he stops me and he's like, hey, um, that's not actually what we do here. <laughs> my my colleague who's like, you know, talk therapy type of doctor is down the hall. I'd be happy to <laughs> recommend you to. And I was like, oh, I, I this entire time I thought that was you. I didn't realize these were mutually exclusive. He's like, no, no, no. I'm the doctor that like, you know, prescribes you things. And uh, he's the one that you talk to. And I've, and I've come to find out. I, I just do oil changes. The guy down the hall does exactly, breaks. Exactly. Exactly. And I've come to find out that there are some doctors who do both. And there are some who just do one or the other. It happened to align with the disintegration of my long-term relationship, which was a, a real blessing because uh, the the therapist who I started seeing for talk therapy was just like, right place, right time, right person, and really helped me navigate, you know, that, that massive life change as it was underway. So since then, you know, when I moved to Orange County about four years ago, had to find a new doctor, found one, and have been going to him to keep my refills current. Uh, but, you know, my health insurance doesn't cover mental health. <laughs> you know, the guy's like 250 bucks a visit. And he was wanting to get me on like a come in every three weeks. And, you know, it's a certain place of pride where I went in a few times. And then I finally told him after like the third or fourth visit, like, hey, um, I don't know what it is about me or people in general that makes this so hard to admit. But I was like, I can't afford to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and once yeah. I said it, I was like, why didn't I say this like three visits ago? But, and then he was just like, oh, well, I, I, yeah, I can recommend someone to you that, you know, it's cheaper and is a colleague and I can be the guy that prescribes you medicine. And, and, I, and, and then I was kind of irritated with him because I'm like, why didn't you present that to me as an option the first time? That's been a few years and, you know, I am still on medication. Uh, I very recently at the recommendation of a good friend started taking these pills called happy it's a brand called happy healthy hippie joy filled and they are <laughs> you know it's some uh non non-western medicine pharmaceutical type shit it's all uh you know plant based New, nootropic substances. yeah i wouldn't say it's a nutraceutical because you know it's not uh, that's a whole other conversation but um it's just, you know, just vitamins. brain supplements. Yeah, it's just vitamins and shit. And, you know, it's kind of hard to tell what effect they're having. I, I was laughing at the I was laughing at the name. Not the oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah, fact yeah. That you take it. No, no, no. I, I got you. For me right now where I'm at with it, I see a massive benefit to talk therapy. I also see a massive benefit to fellowship and study in the in the spiritual place, uh, to meditation, to yoga, to exercise, to combat sports. You know, and as someone who five or six years ago was the fittest I've ever been in my entire life. I recognize the value in all of those things, but there's a big difference between intellectually re recognizing it and then physically making yourself do it. You know, I would put, I would put eating well on that list too. So for me, my absence from talk therapy right now is, is, isn't any different from missing kickboxing class and other things that I believe in and feel I should do. And I'm not doing with that being said, the biggest thing that I learned in talk therapy, you know, I remember the first conversation I had with the doctor that was recommended to me that I was just talking about. You know, I told him a, a story about something that had happened recently and, and how I felt about it and this and that. And 
And I very, you know, very honestly and very plainly was like, am I a sociopath? You know, am I, am I Dexter? Uh, Do I have no feelings? And am I just, you know, pretending to be a person out in the world? And what he explained to me and that I've held on to since then and was a massive, massive breakthrough, much like the, the previous doctor saying, oh, you have obsessive compulsive disorder and I'm going to prescribe this for it. What he explained to me was that for me, losing a parent at a crucial age for emotional development robbed me of a period in life where most people learn how to access and deal with their emotions. And I had more sort of flicked a switch and disappeared them into the bottom of the ocean. And his explanation was, it's not that you don't feel things, Uh, you know, there's a, a deep well of feeling in there. It's that you don't have the tools to access those feelings and, you know, experience yeah, experience in emotional survival mode. Yeah. So anyone who feels like that, uh, you know, and he also said, he's like, you know, his very first thing out of his mouth was look, a sociopath is someone who shoots a dog and feels nothing. That's not you. And he's like, in the story, yeah. in the story that you just told me, the fact that you are, were telling the story and framing it in the context that you felt bad about it and didn't want to do it again. You know, he's like, you're not Dexter. And he's like here. And then here's, Here's the deal. Here's here's what your situation actually is. So yeah, I would uh, I would say much as you advised, for all of the bullshit emphasis that's put on so many exterior things, and all these conversations even about wellness that involve you know CrossFit and yoga and eating clean and all this beast mode stuff, so many of us get caught up in. Your mental health is really kind of paramount and superior to those things and we should prioritize it more you know there's talk of mental health in our culture right now whenever there's a mass shooting like our you know some people go take all the guns and some people go uh that person's just an asshole or you know we talk about people getting radicalized by different extremist movements and all these things that are of course important things to discuss but you also often hear well mental health we don't put enough focus on mental health and people need mental health help and we need to identify things and we need to this and that it shouldn't only be a conversation when there's a mass shooting <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. the, the point of the when it gets to the point of a mass shooting it's way past the point of of probably no return so it's important for each of us people get into diagnosing the mental health of others and you know with our current presidential administration it's really difficult to avoid doing that with him for example but I, I advise against that, and I think a lot of informed, intelligent, educated people do as well, because you just don't know. If you don't, ha- if you don't have that training, and no matter how much therapy you've had yourself, you really can't be out diagnosing other people. What you can do is take care of your own shit, and I think that's the yeah. personal responsibility that we all have and, and kind of the obligation we have to the people that care about us and that we care about is to get in there and, and take care of your own shit. So as much as we lament the, the state of the mental health crisis and all of the various ways that people's trauma are inflicting trauma on others, the one thing we can control 
is our own mental health. So as one of my favorite favorite hardcore bands of the nineties, uh, outspoken once saying, Can't change the world till I change me. So I change me. Change me! 